1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on, to test, on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of, God, of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Well, how should we respond when we suffer as Christians? Now, keep in mind, I don't just mean when Christians suffer in a general way from a fallen world. As Christians, we experience sickness and heartache and mental illness and all kinds of things, just like everyone else does. We've been freshly reminded of that recently. And the Bible has lots to say to encourage us when we are facing that kind of general suffering. But what about when we suffer particularly for being a Christian? The kind of suffering that others don't experience. The kind of pain that you might experience particularly because of the fact that you have chosen to follow Jesus. Well, at this point, someone might object, well, look, Ben... I don't think that's really relevant for us as Christians here in the West. Let's not get a persecution complex now. Christians in Afghanistan are suffering. Christians in North Korea are suffering. But in the West, we don't face anything like that. So how is that really re relevant for us here today? And at one level, I, I think that objection is coming from a great place. I think it's important that we don't have a persecution complex or a, or a victim mentality trying to make things seem to be worse than they are. And it's really important for us to recognise that Christians around the world are facing much more violent opposition than anything we face here in Australia, 100%. But on another level, that objection is misguided. Just because some people suffer far worse, it doesn't mean that we should belittle the suffering that other people face that might not be as extreme. Just because some Christians face outright violent and life-threatening persecution doesn't mean we should ignore the challenges faced by those who aren't being physically persecuted, because God cares about both people in both situations. And one of the reasons I say that with confidence is because of the letter of First Peter. If you've been with us over the past seven weeks or so, you'll have noticed that in 1 Peter, the topic of suffering comes up a lot, like almost every week. And you might have assumed that that suffering involved violent persecution. But when you actually look at how the suffering in 1 Peter is described, we don't find any clear evidence of it being physically violent or life-threatening. If you've got a physical Bible open, you'll be able to scan your eyes across these verses more easily. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 12. It says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. 
Now notice, what's happening to them? They're not being tortured, they're simply being accused of doing wrong. It's not physically violent or life-threatening, is it? Well, have a look at chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Notice, they're not being murdered, they're being insulted. It's verbal rather than physical. And yet Peter still recognizes as real enough to need addressing and that it's a very evil thing to have to endure. Check out chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. He tells them to be prepared to give an answer about their hope in Christ. But then he says, But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. What opposition are they facing? People are speaking maliciously against their behavior in Christ. It's slander, not physical threat. We see the same thing what we saw two weeks ago in 1 Peter 4.4. They surprise that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Verbal abuse, mocked and scorned and scoffed at because they choose not to participate in sin. And yet Peter doesn't say, well, at least you're not being properly persecuted. Stop whining. No, he assures them that God sees what they're going through and that God will make it right as we saw two weeks ago. So for those of us here in Perth, I imagine it's unlikely that in the last six months, any of us have been thrown in prison for our faith, or tortured, or beaten. Uh, Though my wife spoke with someone this morning, uh, who had exactly that, has two friends back in China who were thrown into prison for being Christians. That kind of thing's happening right now. It's not happening here though. I don't think any of us will have faced that here in Perth. But I imagine it's very likely that some of us have been mocked for being a Christian, scoffed at, accused of being a bigot, excluded or ostracized, whether that's from work colleagues or friends, or even for some of us, our own family members. And if that's you, then know that God doesn't belittle what you've faced. God sees and he knows and he cares. And he's given us books like First Peter to help us know how to respond when it happens. So let's come back to that question at the start. How should we respond when we suffer as Christians? Well, in First Peter 4, verses 12 to 19, we find two main answers. And the first one of how we respond is, don't be surprised. Have a look in your Bibles with me, where we see this in First Peter 4, verse 12. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Notice that he's telling them not to be surprised that they're suffering as if it was strange or somehow unexpected. Peter says it's a normal thing for a Christian. After all, Jesus himself said in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, Jesus says, for they do not know the one who sent me. 
Jesus said that we should expect to be treated the same way as him. And why? Because we don't belong to the world. It will see us as outsiders. It will see us as foreigners and exiles, to use the language of First Peter that he brings up so often. And because we don't belong to this world, because we are foreigners and exiles waiting for our true home, because of that we shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition because of Jesus' name. But you might be wondering, why does Peter describe their suffering as the fiery ordeal that has come upon them? Well, he doesn't mean that they are literally being burned at the stake. Uh, That did happen to Christians later in history, not too much later in fact, but not yet at this point when Peter wrote this letter. No, he's he's not talking about literal fire. He's recalling the language we saw back in chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. Notice that language there. May result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know, picture picture a furnace where a blacksmith is hard at work, refining gold to make it more pure. And Peter says that your faith, your trust in Jesus, is even more precious than gold. And when you go through trials or suffering, no matter what it might be, be trials of various kinds when that's happening god is refining your faith and making it more pure and that's the same idea here in first peter 4 12 the fiery ordeal that's doing what it's come to test you he says notice that same idea of testing and refining his people purifying our faith and making us more like jesus Now, this idea of uh, suffering being a refining fire for God's people is picked up in verses 17 to 18 of our passage too. Have a look in your Bible with me from verse 17. It says, For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, at first, these verses might be a little confusing. What does it mean that judgment begins with God's household? Is this saying that Christians are going to come under God's final judgment and condemnation? Well, no, the key to understanding this verse is to understand how the Bible uses language of judgment. We shouldn't always assume the word judgment refers to final condemnation. In some contexts, it does, but in many contexts, it doesn't. For example, in John 7, 24, Jesus says, Stop judging by mere appearances and instead make a right judgment. Now, clearly Jesus isn't using the word judgment to mean final condemnation, is he? That wouldn't make any sense in this context. No, here it means to make a discerning call to judge something rightly, to sift and discern and decide. Or uh, have a look at 1 Corinthians 11. Now, in this passage, Paul is writing to Christians who are sinning as they shared in the Lord's Supper. And God brought judgment on his people because of that. Now, that itself is pretty confronting. But look at how it's explained. This is 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 29. He says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, 
eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, that is, have been more discerning about ourselves, using judgment in the sense that Jesus was using it before, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not have come under such judgment. So here are some Christians who are facing God's judgment, but does that mean that they're facing his final condemnation? Well, no, the very next verse couldn't be more explicit. Verse 32, it says, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. When Christians experience judgment, it is not final condemnation, but rather temporary discipline from a loving father who wants to grow us and teach us. In fact, it's, it's very explicit. The purpose of that discipline is to keep us from being condemned, to refine us, to sift us, to make us more like Jesus, our suffering saviour. And that's the same sense that the word judgment is carrying in 1 Peter 4, 17. In describing the suffering that they're facing uh, because they are connected to the name of Jesus, he says, don't be surprised And don't worry, God is using this to refine and sift and discipline you like a loving father. And God said, he then says, if that's how serious God takes sin and how seriously he wants to grow even his own people, how much more serious will judgment in terms of final condemnation be for those who reject Jesus, the one who he's given so that we can have our trust in him and be forgiven? Okay. So how should Christians respond? How should we respond when we suffer as Christians? Well, first up, Peter says, don't be surprised. If the world hated Jesus, it will hate us too. But more than that, second, we should rejoice. Have a look in your Bibles with me at verses 13 to 16 where we see this. First Peter 4, 13. It says, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, this is taking things to another level, isn't it? Like it's, it's one thing to say, don't be surprised when you suffer. Like That's fair enough. Be prepared so you can grit your teeth and bear it. But this is saying a lot more than that, isn't it? To actually rejoice? I mean, that's harder to get your head around. But we've got to take this seriously. This really means what it says. And in these verses, God is giving us some rock-solid reasons about why we can rejoice in suffering. There are two uh, big reasons that come out. Uh, Reason number one, why we can rejoice when we suffer, is because of future glory. Rejoice as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Why? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, when it says when his glory is revealed, it's referring to Jesus' second coming. When Jesus comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. 
And Peter is saying that one big reason that we can rejoice when we're mistreated as a Christian is that if we suffer with Christ now, we'll be glorified with him later. The pattern of Jesus' life was suffering now, glory later. And so for us to share in Christ's sufferings now is to be on the sure road to share in his glory when he returns. Suffering for Christ now shows us that we're united to Christ and our destiny is bound up in his. As we sang last week, minor days here as a stranger. It's very first Peter language. Minor days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter, harm and hatred for his name. Notice that key phrase, one with Christ. It's saying, by faith, we're one with Christ. We're united to him. And therefore, facing hatred for his name is actually a sign that our destiny is tied to his. It's kind of like a three-legged race, but you're strapped to Jesus. And this three-legged race isn't one of those little 100-meter dashes. This is 42.2 kilometers. It's a marathon, and you're feeling really unfit. This is going to be painful. It's going to be long. But Jesus is so strong that if you just stick with him, he is going to literally carry you to victory, and you're going to be guaranteed to win gold. It's going to be suffering along the way, make no mistake. But if you're willing to stick with Jesus, he's going to carry you to glory. You're one with Christ. You're bound up with him. Your destiny is his destiny. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Why? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Isn't that an amazing thought? Next time you're feeling like an outsider as a Christian... Well, you don't fit in because you choose to follow Jesus. Next time you're mocked or laughed at or called a bigot for following Jesus' teaching on sexuality, let that be a reminder that you are one with Christ. Let it be a reminder that if you're sharing in his sufferings now, that's a good sign. That's a feature, not a bug. It means you're going to share in his glory later. And that will help you not only to not be surprised when sufferings come, but to actually even rejoice in it. So that's the first reason we can rejoice in suffering. Future glory. And the second reason is present privilege. Future glory and present privilege. Have a look in your Bibles with me at verses 14 to 16 and and see if you can see how this plays out. From verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, notice a couple of things. First up, it says, if you're insulted... So once again, notice it's verbal opposition that's particularly in mind here. But, of course, the principle still applies for those who face worse suffering as well. Second, notice he says that if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. Present tense. He doesn't say that you will be blessed. Future tense. Though we've seen that that's true too. 
Now, so whereas verse 13 focused on the future glory as a reason to rejoice in suffering, verses 14 to 16 is bringing it to the present tense. If you're insulted because of Christ, you're blessed now, for God's spirit rests on you. The fact that you're insulted is a reminder that you're united to Christ and therefore filled with his spirit even in the here and now. And that itself is a privilege and a blessing. Now, I must admit, I find this one much harder to get my head around and to get my heart into. Rejoice in suffering now because of glory later? I totally get that. This life is short. Glory with Jesus is forever. Sign me up. But to rejoice in suffering now simply because of the present privilege and blessing to be identified with Christ in our suffering? I mean, that's a a much harder thing, isn't it? Now, let's be clear. This is not glorifying suffering. This is not saying that suffering itself is a good thing that we should desire or pursue or rejoice in for its own sake. No, verse 15 makes that crystal clear. It says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, thief, any kind of criminal, even as a meddler. It's saying there are all kinds of bad reasons to suffer. There's no glory in that. There's no privilege in that. There's no reason to rejoice in suffering in and of itself. But, verse 16 says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. It can be tempting to feel ashamed, can't it? Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. The goal is not suffering here, is it? The goal is Jesus. The goal is knowing him, of being identified with him. And because he is so precious to us, we're willing to suffer if that's what's required. Not because we treasure suffering, but because we treasure Christ. And that's part of why it says in verse 12 that suffering tests our faith. It reveals what's really going on. Do I really treasure Christ and knowing him or do I treasure comfort? Do I treasure fitting in? That's a challenging question. Remember an old uh, mentor of mine used to say that suffering is a litmus test of faith. You know, some people who suffer, it drives them away from Christianity. Other people who suffer, it drives them even closer to Jesus. But it didn't make them a Christian or unmake them a Christian. It simply revealed what was truly going on underneath. Were they truly treasuring Christ? Or were they treasuring comfort in the things of this world more? When it comes down to it, which would they choose? That's a challenging thought for each of us, even for myself, to ask. It can be hard to imagine not only being willing to suffer for Jesus, but actually rejoicing in it, can't it? And yet, as counterintuitive as it might seem... This has been a reality that many Christians have experienced. Perhaps the earliest case of this happening is in Acts 5. In Acts 5, the apostles are preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus. But then they get arrested and hauled in before the Sanhedrin, the local authority. They get flogged and beaten and whipped before finally being released. And Acts 5.41 says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been released. That's not what it says, is it? Rejoicing because although they suffered now, there's going to be glory coming later. That's not what it says. Why were they rejoicing? 
They were rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced at the privilege of sharing in Jesus' suffering, of being identified with him, of being treated like him, of being one with him. And it's not like they're unique in this, as if they're superhumans or something. No, the apostles were sinners just like us. And their experience of joy in the face of suffering for Christ has been shared by many people throughout history, even in the darkest of circumstances. Uh, Helen Rosevere was a missionary in the Congo for about 20 years. And after she'd been there for about a decade, there's a civil war uh, in the Congo known as the Simba Rebellion. Along with uh, many other missionaries, she was captured, brutally treated, and tragically, she was raped. Uh, She later wrote uh, extensively about her experience uh, in many different places, uh, including uh, the following words that she wrote in one of her memoirs. She writes, Momentarily, I had felt the same uh, the night the rebel soldiers first took me captive. Beaten, flung on the ground, kicked, teeth broken, mouth and nose gashed, ribs bruised, driven at gunpoint back to my home, jeered at, insulted, threatened. I knew that if the rebel lieutenant did not pull the trigger of his revolver and end the situation, worse pain and humiliation lay ahead. It was a very dark night. I felt unutterably alone. For a brief moment, I felt God had failed me. He could have stepped in and prevented this rising crescendo of wickedness and cruelty. He could have saved me out of their hands. Why didn't he speak? Why didn't he intervene? And in desperation, I almost cried out against him. It's too much to pay. Yet his love for me cost him his life. He gave himself in that one all-sufficient atoning sacrifice at Calvary. He so loved that he gave all. His sacrifice was the expression of his great love. In the darkness and loneliness, he met with me. He was right there, a wonderful, great, almighty God. His love enveloped me. Suddenly the wire dropped away from me and an unbelievable peace flowed in, even in the midst of wickedness. And he breathed a word into my troubled mind, the word privilege. It was inconceivable yet true. He offered me the inestimable privilege of sharing with him, in some little measure at least, in the edge of the fellowship of his sufferings. And it was all privilege. Now, don't misunderstand her. She's not saying the suffering wasn't real or that it wasn't horrible. She's not saying that suffering in and of itself is a good thing that we should seek or pursue. No. She's saying that suffering is horrible, but in the midst of it, she experienced something of the peace that comes from God as the spirit of glory and of God rested on her, strengthening her. And giving her a sense of God's love and peace, even in the midst of the great injustice that she was facing. She experienced something of the privilege of participating in the sufferings of Christ. Of how deeply he was mistreated and she was drawn closer to him through it. And Uni Church, that's been my prayer for you during these past few weeks. 
as you head out into the coming week and the coming year, not only would you not be surprised when you face opposition for the name of Christ, but that you would actually see it as an opposition, as an occasion rather, to rejoice. That you'd be able to rejoice for being counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Whether it's mockery or accusations or slander or being treated as an outsider or whether it's something worse. Whether it's from your family because you're taking this whole Jesus thing too seriously. Whether it's from your friends because you won't join in on the gossip or the coarse joking or the drinking. Whether it's from your workmates because you won't celebrate lifestyles that Jesus wouldn't celebrate. None of that will be easy. None of it will be comfortable. But none of it should surprise us either. And more than that, in all those situations, we can rejoice because it reminds us that you are united to Christ. Both the present privilege of sharing in Christ's suffering now and also the confidence of sharing in Christ's glory later. So brothers and sisters, let's pray for God's help that we might commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good, even if we suffer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you as the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. We thank you that although we have all at times turned away from you, you have not turned your back on us. Thank you for sending Jesus who willingly gave himself to suffer and die in our place. To draw us back to you. So that the suffering in this life that we face, we would never have to worry that we're facing your condemnation. But we can instead know that is your loving discipline as a father who's drawing his children back to himself. Father, help us to arm ourselves with the same mindset as Christ to entrust ourselves to you and to live for your honour and glory, even if it means we'll face suffering. Father, give us confidence at times this week when we feel tempted to stay quiet. Give us courage to speak up, to not be ashamed of being different because of Jesus. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to treasure him both now and looking forward to the glory to come. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.